Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The year of 2024 demands your response from everyone in the world. If we do not act now, Putin will manage to make the next year's catastrophic, catastrophic for other nations as well. Nearly two years after Russia launched its full-scale war in Ukraine, President Volodymyr Zelensky sounded more dire than ever as he implored leaders at the recent Munich Security Conference to support his country. The fighting drags on. But Europe is changing. The Great Peace Project is confronting, once again, the realities of war. Zelensky urged allies not to give up on his country and to resist an idea that's getting harder to ignore even for some of Ukraine's most ardent supporters, that maybe Ukraine can't win. Please do not ask Ukraine when the war will end. Ask yourself, why is Putin still able to continue it? Slava Ukraine. I'm Sarah Wheaton, host of EU Confidential. In recent episodes, we've been talking a lot about defense. Europe's ability and willingness to defend not only itself, but also Ukraine, even if the U.S. turns its back on NATO. Today, we're still going to talk about the war, but we're going to be a bit more introspective about it. How is it changing Ukrainians? And how is it changing us here in the EU? To help us do that, we're speaking to Bulgarian political scientist Ivan Krastev and our Ukrainian colleague Veronika Melkazarova, who covers the war for Politico from Kyiv. And this moment that there should be the idea of a collective we and that people should be ready to sacrifice something for this, this is not enough to live together. Probably from time to time you should prove that you can die for something. This is totally new. Then they looked at me a little bit as if I am terminally ill, having sort of, you know, like a disease that is incurable and they do not know how to start a conversation. But first, let's touch on the biggest news of the week here in Brussels. It's one of those news items that we all knew was coming. Ursula von der Leyen finally made it official that she wants to stay in Brussels and lead the next commission after the elections in June. That means we can finally get serious about campaign season. I'm here with my colleague Hans van der Borschard, and you are in Berlin. And you just went to, earlier this week, a very interesting press conference with none other than Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Look, 
we all like to procrastinate, but she really pushed a deadline for making a decision about her future. And sometimes uh, we see these very elaborate campaign kickoffs. You know, Trump famously rode down the escalator in Trump Tower in New York. Did von der Leyen's announcement feel like a big party? Well, of course, it's always a bit more <laughs> boring at the European level than in uh, in the US. But what struck me at this press conference was that there there was a lot of media attention. And also, it, it lasted quite a while. But yeah, so indeed, as you mentioned, she really pushed the deadline because uh, the deadline was this Wednesday. And she made the announcement only on Monday, really like 5 to 12. And that deadline was for her to announce her candidacy as the Spitzenkandidat for her center-right CDU party and then on a larger European level, the European People's Party to run for another term as European Commission president. She came here to Berlin to meet with her party, her CDU party. They had an internal meeting where they sat down and where she was responding to quite a lot of questions about her candidacy, especially the party wanted to know whether she, after having spearheaded this European Green Deal as the flagship project of her first mandate, whether she is now going to become a bit less of a green or leftist politician and more a conservative or center-right politician. And uh, so she um, satisfied her party by announcing that her next mandate is going to be all about competitiveness and economy. There's even talk now of an industrial deal after the Green Deal. And uh, that was also then reflected in an announcement to the press where she talked a lot about this, as well as the need to ramp up European defense. She actually already announced that she wants to appoint a dedicated defense commissioner. Hans, I'm confused. Are you saying that she's running for re-election by basically reversing her own legacy? Not entirely. I mean, she says that still, of course, climate protection is important. And I think nobody would contradict her uh, apart from perhaps the really far right parties, but also her own party. Everybody says, of course, yes. But what her party and what she are now agreeing on is that more needs to be done to make this transition, this green transition function for the economy. So that means less bureaucracy, less red tape for companies. Von der Leyen actually said, also in the direction of the farmers, let's sit down together and see how we can make these climate targets work. And she said the same to the companies. At least this is her pitch now. We're talking about re-election and we say that she's this lead candidate, but in reality, it's European leaders who choose her. And then ultimately, the parliament will get to kind of say yes or no. But Hans, you know, what's your sense of how she's going to do among this this small core group of 27 European leaders who will actually be the ones who make the final decision? It wouldn't be Europe if this wasn't a bit complicated. Yes, it will be up to the EU leaders in the European Council where EU leaders will sit together and say, well, she's the Spitzenkandidat whose party, the European People's Party, has the biggest outcome and therefore we nominate her as the candidate and that is very likely that they will give her the support for another term as the European uh, Commission president. Even if there are some people who were to vote against her, perhaps Viktor Orban, who of course has been clashing a lot with Brussels recently, she could still be appointed because there's a qualified majority decisions. But then 
she needs the backing by the European Parliament. And that is going to be a bit more tricky because she will need to form a coalition. She will need to get the socialists on board, uh, probably the liberals, some votes of the Greens. But still, in the end, I don't think that there's going to be a major obstacle. Broadly, it's likely that she will get reelected. And so one thing that people were wondering about with von der Leyen is what she would do to actually campaign. So is she going to run to be a member of the European Parliament the way we might normally see in in a parliamentary system? No, she's not. And uh, here again, I have to say that's one of those uh, complexities of the European system. She's not running for a seat in the European Parliament, but she's the Spitzenkandidat. And a lot of people have attacked her over this. If she had run for the European Parliament, she would have only been on the ballot in her state in Lower Saxony. So even in Germany, most people wouldn't have been able to vote for her actually on a ballot. So on that uh, level, it, it wouldn't have made too much sense for her to run. Do we have any sense of what she will do to campaign while balancing her, her day job? She was asked about this on Monday at the press conference here in Berlin, and she said there has to be a clear separation. So when she is running for her re-election campaign rallies, etc., which she intends to do in all 27 EU member states, then she will make clear that this is a von der Leyen seeking re-election and not the acting commission president. So she even said she will would not use any resources of the European Commission to do this. But uh, yeah, of course, it's a bit of a tricky role. And then there might be certain positive announcements as a commission president that people will say, well, you're using this for your re-election. Let's see. Right, indeed. Incumbency, usually an advantage, but can sometimes be a problem if it becomes a referendum on the leader. Hans, speaking of new jobs, your job for Politico got a bit more complex. Can you tell us about what you're working on these days? Yes, indeed. So we just launched on Monday the Politico Berlin playbook in German, It's led by my new boss, Gordon Rapinski. So we're all very excited about this. Awesome. Well, um, we're looking forward to hearing from you and your teammates over the coming weeks and months. And we'll put a link for people to subscribe to that new Berlin playbook in our show notes. Hans, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much. It was uh, lovely joining you guys. Coming up after the break, we'll turn our focus to Ukraine as we mark two years of the war. Stay with us. 
is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Our next guest is one of Europe's most prominent thinkers and chairman of the Center for Liberal Strategies in Sofia, Ivan Krastev. We spoke to him on this podcast exactly a year ago about how Europe has changed as a result of the war in Ukraine. So we wanted to revisit that conversation ahead of the second anniversary of Russia's aggression. Our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, sat down with Krastev in Munich, just as news broke that Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny had died suddenly in prison. We had you on the show this time last year to mark the one year, I don't want to call it an anniversary, but the one year mark of Russia's war in Ukraine. We've invited you back now at the second year mark. Are you surprised to be here sitting with me today to have this discussion? Listen, we're surprised all the time. But honestly speaking, I was not one of those who believed that the war is going to be over in two years. In order for the war to end, particularly from the point of view of uh, the Ukrainians, it was very much uh, preconditioned on that there's going to be a major change in Moscow. Because even if the Ukrainians were successful to liberate territories, the idea was that without change in Moscow, this is not the end of the war. And on the other side, while in the beginning many people believed that uh, the Russians are going to basically destroy Ukraine in six weeks, it was clear that the Ukrainians were fighting and that basically they're not ready to allow this to happen. So as a result of it, we ended up with a war which is very difficult for people to imagine the scale of the war. The scale of the shells that are fired now in Ukraine is on the level of 1942. It's not a military conflict. It is a big war between two big countries, one of the nuclear power. But what is important when you pull back, it's so important to see how fast the things are changing and how they go in a different direction and how people are totally pessimistic, then over-optimistic, then pessimistic again. And I want to bring you back to a year ago and the comments that you made to us, which were not just about Ukraine, of course, and the way that the war has shaped the country, but also about Europe itself and the way that Europe thinks about itself, perhaps no longer as a peace project. So no longer thinking about, you know, wars in the past and we can focus on the economy, but really that this is an identity shift of the continent. What do you have to say about this now when you're on? This is a famous children's book, which tells the story of somebody who jump on the horse and start riding in all directions at the same time. So there is something about it. Listen, many things important changed. Things that basically Europeans were never going to imagine. Today, the discussion is about EU defense budget, EU defense commissioner, basically having European military-industrial complex. On the other side, it turned out that the time is the most important thing that kind of Europeans were not prepared for. It's not simply that we should change, but we should change very fast. And the difference between the countries and also... Europe is slightly tired of crises which are all the time intertwined. First, you have climate, which was around and which is going to be with us. You have the economic crisis. You have migration. You have COVID. Now you have the war. And the moment you focus on Ukraine, you have the war in the Middle East. And you have the feeling that the world is so different than the world that we know, that we don't know what to do. And for a while, we were really not ready to accept that the world that worked well for us is not here anymore. We're trying to preserve this old world that has disappeared. And now I do believe we understand very much that we should think how to adjust to a new world, which is very different. And by the way, where Europe is challenged on many things. All the things that Europeans were taking for granted, peace, America's security umbrella, 
in a certain way, economic prosperity. All this is challenge. What you just described in terms of Europe not really knowing what direction to go, isn't that a question then of leadership? I don't believe it's a leadership only. And from this point of view, we can have many kind of questions and they can be criticism. But it is fair to say that European leaders, including particularly also Brussels, were faster to understand what basically is going on. But in the democratic countries, it's not enough for the leaders to make a decision. You should keep people with you. And from this point of view, one of the most important things that we're seeing today is this kind of interrelations between elections and wars. And keep in mind, wars are play out in the battlefield, but quite often they're decided in ballot boxes. This is where basically the American war in Vietnam ended. This is where the French war in Algeria ended. And as a result of it, basically the politicians should try to communicate and convince the people to be ready to live in a new world. And this new world is the world that we don't like. And don't forget, the word sacrifice has disappeared from the language of European politicians for decades. And now it does not easily translate on every language. This is not talk about money anymore. And also you can see differences in different European countries because, as you know, basically European Council of Foreign Relations is doing quite a lot of uh, polling in which I'm involved. And you're going to see how different Europeans are. We did, for example, a polling in which we asked people out of these five crises that I told you about, climate, economic, COVID, migration, war, which is the most important for you. And you're going to be surprised how different it is in different countries. For example, for countries like Poland, Estonia, this is the war. But then you go to places like Italy or Spain, and this is the economic crisis still. And there are places where COVID continues to be the most important crisis. And of course, Germany is very much over-dominated by migration. So all these crises are kind of mixing together. We're going to see how it is going to be mixed on the European elections. But keep in mind, all these five crises basically reach every single European, almost on existential level. These European elections, from this point of view, are going to be slightly different. For the first time, you're going to have the acting president of the commission, which most probably of what we hear is going to be on the list. And then you're going to be basically somebody who is going to define the agenda. And for me today, I'm going to be one major issue that is going to dominate all this crisis together. And this is the problem of the borders. But borders as a military borders, what we are doing now when the war is not something that unimaginable borders when it comes to migration, how basically you decide who can get in, who can get out, and how you're doing this. Borders when it comes to the economy, what things you want to keep within the borders, and this comes with COVID, and now it comes with the uh, defense. And so from this point of view, this is going to be the moment in which Europe is going to basically learn where borders are, because before European Union was a project with soft borders and hard budgets. The idea was that we believe that we are kind of bordering future members all the time. Now, probably we're moving to a project which is going to have hard borders and soft budgets. I can't help but pick up on your comments about the European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, who by the time people hear this conversation will have declared her intentions to have a second term as the commission chief. I just wonder if you were her advisor for the day, where you would see her priorities being, and do you think she's up to the task? Well, listen, I'm sure that she has enough good advisors to need any of us. Nobody can change Europe. 
if you didn't manage to convince the majority of Europeans in what you're doing. Because the crisis is so big and it's so diverse that basically either people are going to share your sensitivities. It does not need people to agree with everything that you're doing, but you should basically agree on what is the real challenge and what is the choices that Europe is facing. And this can be seen only on the elections. And I don't believe for her it's going to be important because she has been in a period in where some of the most important crises happened, starting with COVID. And by the way, in COVID, European Union showed the industrial scale, which now we should demonstrate with the defense industry, which we are not doing. She was very kind of a strong on Ukraine, and she was also very much strong on the transatlantic. And this is going to be a challenge to her, depending on what is happening on the battlefield and also what is happening in the United States. So from this point of view, I do believe this is going to be also the elections that should answer one question. Is Europe ambitious enough, but also capable enough to be an independent player in different areas? And this is easy to be said on the conferences. Everybody is going to talk about European sovereignty, but this is the problem of capacity. And this is also the problem of convincing people that this is important for them. And here, Ukrainian war played a very interesting effect in my view, and I could be totally wrong because it was a nationalist moment and European moment at the same time. What do you mean by that? When the war started, all these small states understood that in this big world, none of them can play on their own. For example, Meloni in Italy and others, they became reconciled to the European Union. Nobody wants to leave the Union. Many wants to change it, but nobody wants to leave it. But on the other side, it was also a nationalist moment, because also what we see in Ukraine is that, uh, you know, this famous Brecht saying, that he feels pity for nations that need heroes. At some point, you need heroes. And this moment that there should be the idea of a collective we and that people should be ready to sacrifice something from this, this is not enough to live together. Probably from time to time, you should prove that you can die for something. This is totally new. This is questions that in Europe have not been discussed since the end of the Cold War. And as a result of it, this kind of a combination of very cosmopolitan pro-Europeans who suddenly discovered the power of nationalism and then you're going to see all these people with the Ukrainian flags in European capitalists. And on the other hand, the nationalists who till yesterday believed that the biggest threat for their country is coming from Brussels and understanding that they're going to places which are much more dangerous than Brussels. I don't believe this is something new. I do want to pick up on what you mentioned about the transatlantic alliance. The recent comments by Donald Trump are certainly echoing throughout European corridors. What kind of partner is Europe looking to have, regardless, I guess, of 2024 for the most part? This is part of the challenges that Europe is facing. America is going to change. There are much less people for whom Europe is the most important place in the world. And I don't know if we should be prepared for this. Even if Trump is not going to be elected, Europeans realize that unlike two years ago, we believed that the war in Ukraine is a global conflict. It's a European conflict. Others don't care. Even if Biden is going to be re-elected, it's going to be up to the European Union to deal in one way or the other with the Ukrainian crisis. And this is a new reality. With Trump, it's going to be very, very problematic. And one of the things that for me is important that I could be wrong is that majority of Europeans are not convinced that basically Ukraine can achieve what they are basically declared as a victory, the liberation of all its territory. It has changed dramatically. On the other side, majority of Europeans strongly don't want Russia to win. 
and they expect certain type of settlement, certain type of negotiations. But the problem is how those negotiations is going to take place. And my feeling is, and this is personal feeling, not based on the data. Listen, in politics, you can have a very flexible idea of victory, and it helps you. But you should have a very clear idea of what is a defeat. And in my view, for Europe, if we're going to allow not simply Ukraine basically to Jewish territory, but if we're going to allow Ukraine not to be part of the West, this is not a defeat for Ukraine. But Ukraine has a very specific idea of what victory looks like. Because they try to mobilize their people. This is very natural. They have all the legal rights to do this. But we're going to face tough choices. It's not simply going to be basically you're going to get everything. But to allow basically Ukraine to fight without us getting securities, what for us is going to be our common defeat is important. When we talked this time last year, Germany was really front and center of your remarks in terms of the remarkable changes that happened so quickly with the so-called Zeitenwende yeah. and how fundamental that has been. I'm curious, as you look or reflect on this past year, what you see as the biggest change in your mind? Listen, for me, this is the most important issue because what was typical for most of the previous crises, that many crises were crises for others and Germany was part of the solution. At the moment, the European crisis is centered on Germany because this is the crisis of the post-war German identity on everything. German economic model, which was very much based on Russian gas and Chinese markets. German cultural and political identity also coming with the crisis in the Middle East, relations to Israel, relations to Palestinians. German domestic politics, which was so consensual, and now you have the rise of there and the fear of past coming back. So from this point of view, I do believe it's too early to say how well Germany is going to do it or not. But I do believe Germany is in the center of the crisis. And to a certain extent, the success of Europe to make it is going to be very much the success of Germany to make it. But I always believe that uh, Germany is a serious country. And you know this famous saying of Churchill about Americans? I hope that this is true also for Germany that they're going to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. I'd like to wrap up looking to the future. Ukraine has high ambitions to join both the European Union and NATO. And while there is goodwill among most, not all, uh, for it to join, I think that there are concerns that it opens up a lot of questions about the European Union and what that looks like, bringing in such a large country and one recovering from war, at least in the minds of many. What does a European Union with a Ukraine look like? We talk about the enlargement and we try to pretend that this is going to be exactly how it worked with Eastern Europe after 1989. We're in a totally different game. Before it was, we're going to make the East like the West. And the idea was that the West is not going to change. The East is going to change and they're going to converge. The enlargement of Ukraine, but also Western Balkans, is remaking of the European Union. And from this point of view, honestly speaking, the West should have to change more than the East. Because we are going to have European Union, which is in a totally different geopolitical situation. This is a European Union, not only as a peace project, but as a war project. And to believe that we basically can integrate Ukraine in the way you're integrating Poland or Hungary, this is a bureaucratic utopia. On the other side, to believe that you can leave Ukraine, kind of uh, walk around between East and West, and that this is not going to have a cost, this is totally unrealistic. And don't forget... Ukrainian war is totally impossible without the support of outside. And when we talk about the end of the war, this is going to be probably, and I hope that we're going to have an active military part ended in one way or the other. But if you listen carefully to President Putin, you're going to see that 
He's not promising his people victory. He's promising a never-ending war. And this war is not about Ukraine. It's about the West. And this is why many people didn't realize why the Russians were not shocked and didn't punish him for basically losing the military operation, which would have ended in six weeks. Because he managed to convince their own people that this is the war with the West, not the war with Ukraine. That was our own Christina Gonzalez talking to Ivan Krastev. Thanks to you both. And finally, let's welcome our Politico colleague in Kyiv, who knows all too well the impacts of the war on Ukrainians, including herself. I'm Zooming with Veronica Melkozarova, who is in Kyiv right now. Veronica, I just read your article about what it's like to be a Ukrainian in this moment, no matter where in the world you are. And I have to admit, I had quite an emotional reaction to reading it. Let's start out talking about President Zelensky's New Year's address. What did he say? We have more than 6 million Ukrainians who left since the start of Russia's full-scale invasion. And basically, he asked those people to choose whether they are citizens or refugees, because Zelensky really needs more people now. We need new mobilization for the war front when uh, support is pretty wobbling. And there is no U.S. support still. And front is on the verge of possible collapse at one of the places, as you saw in Avdiivka recently. So things are pretty hard. So in his New Year's speech, he said they basically have to choose whether they're citizens or refugees. And that caused an uproar. And what does that mean, citizen or refugee? Well, he explains that he was meaning to like make Ukrainians come back, make them feel the way they felt in 2022 when a lot of our people who were living abroad for years came back and joined the fight. They remembered that they owe this country, all these, you know, very high feelings. But after two years of war, people who many of whom lost everything in Ukraine. It was like 4 million Ukrainians have lost their homes, basically, because of the shelling occupation. And those people got angry because there's like too much uh, for them already to demand. They have lost anything. Now Zelensky is basically saying, yes, you took your kids abroad because you want a future for them. But we here, we also want a future. So you have to like decide whether you are with us or you're just a refugee, which means that you don't have a country, you live on a welfare, and you don't want to deal with this anymore. And when you say it caused an uproar, did it cause an uproar in Ukraine or was the uproar among the diaspora, this group of refugees? I think that those who are like me, who stayed and never left, they agreed with Zelensky because they're saying like, hey, we stayed, we work here, our kids are here, we have to survive uh, in this constant air raid alerts, bombings, missile attacks, but we still pay taxes, we still donate for the army, we're here. Not all of us are at the war front, but we basically here. Why are you there? abroad, your life is like rosy, you're safe, you're in wealthy countries, everything is like 
pretty well. While Ukrainians abroad, they actually tried to explain that everything is not so rosy there, that they feel in constant guilt, they don't feel themselves at home, they miss their native lands. Some of their cities like Abdivka or Bakhmut were destroyed. So it's basically very, very hard psychological situation they have now. And uh, they did not agree that they suffer less than those of us who stayed. You spoke to someone living in Portugal. Can you tell us a little bit about her story and kind of her psychological situation that she's dealing with? Yes. So her name is Thaisa Semenova. She's a 27-year-old Ukrainian woman. She left Ukraine on February 26, 2022. She told me that basically she chose her own future. She chose her own life her own well-being over her country. Now she has like a, a good job. She works for an American company in Portugal. She lives under the palm trees, very good climate, but she doesn't know how to speak to her friends who are here. What to say and what not to say. For example, any kind of her own like uh, problem might seem as something ridiculous and significant to people who live here where the reality is like pretty rough. So she started losing contacts with Ukraine. There's like not so many common topics to discuss. And she's like, it's like a minefield. You have to choose what to say. Yeah. Of those who did stay, there are also increasing tensions, no? That's true. Everyone is very tired. In Europe, when you talk about war in Ukraine, people are tired. Of course, they are tired. But imagine how it is to be a Ukrainian living in Ukraine for all these years of war. So people are angry. People now, they face reality that partners will not be there always. They have their own problems. They do not owe us anything. They already helped a lot. Our own government, which we thought at first that they started working well, finally, now they make one wrong decision after another wrong decision. The ranking, political ranking of Zelensky is dropping slowly. He's still the most popular politician, but others are just even worse, I would say. So yes, there are people who are trying to find somebody to blame of everything, somebody pretty easy to like just spill their emotions. Soldiers who are fighting for two years without even a good long vacation, they are tired, exhausted. They face Russians coming in overwhelming numbers at the war front. And what they see in the rear, they see people going to the restaurants, people not donating that much as they used to. They're seeing this happening inside of Ukraine. They're seeing people in Kiev and, and Lviv and, and other cities having a normal life, you're saying? Yes, the version of normal life, because n nobody's having a normal life in Ukraine right now, because you might go to the restaurant or go to work, and then there's like a, an air raid alert, and missile starts coming, and you, you have to run to the nearby metro station or just not care at all because you don't have any bomb shelter in your district. So you just have to wait there and hope for the best. 
and that's the that's all you can do basically but yes the fact that one part of the nation lives either in trenches full of mud full of blood and uh, horror their relatives always live in fear that they might not get a call back this day another part of the nation is living in this illusion that maybe their turn will not come, maybe the war will be over and others will face the scariest part of it. People like me, for example, I am a Ukrainian citizen. Many women of my age are at the war front, but I'm I'm scared. I I, I just I calm myself uh, saying like, hey, I work, I tell the world about Ukraine, I donate, I do this, this, this. But it's excuse. As soldiers explain to us civilians that this all is an excuse because every one of us must understand that Russia will not let us be, especially now when Putin sensed weakness in the West and he felt this, you know, new strength, especially with the fall of Avdiivka. It's obvious already that he's not going to stop. He's going to go further until he reaches the goal. So there are divisions. There are families of soldiers who see men on the streets of Kiev and they do not know how to explain to themselves why this man is in Kiev and their man is on the war front. Yeah. And with all of this doubt about whether the U.S. is going to come through with further support, with sort of whispers in European capitals about finding some sort of off-ramp, are these signs of dwindling or unreliable support in the West? Do you see them sort of helping Ukrainians reunite or do you see it further deepening the tensions? We're still united and we believe in each other. What we do not believe is institutions, politicians, and not only like in Ukraine, but in the European Union too. Because if you remember 2022, European Union leaders and US leaders started doing anything like only after European Union nations and Americans went on the streets, they were protesting, they were demanding to help us. Nowadays, you don't see this. You see this for people of Gaza. You don't see this for Ukrainians. It's like the old content, a spam that is no longer that interesting. It's not our turn anymore to be in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there is like a very, very big disillusion in uh, Western partners but not in nations. You used a really um, evocative expression uh, in your article, and we're talking over Zoom. I'm looking at you, I'm looking at myself, and I'm worried that I'm doing what you described. When you get to leave Ukraine every once in a while to come visit Brussels, other places, you've spoken to, to universities about your experience. What's your sense of how people react to you, reacted to you in 2022 versus versus now? Oh, yeah, it was like I met not only those who work with me all the time, so they treat me like a normal person, but these people who were a little bit puzzled to meet me, they never saw like another Ukrainian. And they were like, in 2022, it was as if I was a action hero nation. Like everyone was like, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna win. Everything's gonna be good. Your nation is such a fighting spirit we all should be like you you reminded us what a real democracy is we forgot that this 
things are not for granted. While in 2024 and in 2023, like second half, people were like, they looked at me, they went silent. And then they looked at me a little bit like uh, as if I am terminally ill, uh, having sort of, you know, like a disease that is incurable and they do not know how to start a conversation or just some of them were asking like, oh, how are you? Is everything okay with you? How is your family coping with this? (laughs) So for me, it's like, it's, my sense of humor is strange one. I know, don't, please don't control your facial expressions. Everything is fine. It's just that I think like this metaphor perfectly describes the situation like people, they feel helpless and it's not because they are bad or they are insensitive. They just don't know what to say to make it better for us. I think I'll leave it there in that sort of uncomfortable uncertainty in that case, rather than using my normal American temptation to try to end on a chirpy, optimistic note. So, Veronica, it's always also a big request to ask journalists to talk about things in such a personal way. So you've been very generous in that respect as well. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And indeed, we'll leave it there this week. We thank you for the messages and emails. Please keep sending them to podcast at politico.eu. You can also follow us and rate us on your favorite app. I'm Sarah Wheaton. Thank you to our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, and to Diana Sturis, our senior audio producer. See you next week.